Welcome to this podcast by The Rocks Church. We hope you find it challenging and inspiring. For more information, visit therocks.church. Good morning. Welcome to 2024. So good to be here with you that I get to kick off this series right here. What a tremendous privilege. And of course, how not to be your own worst enemy. What a great series. And I have a question for you. Have you ever been your own worst enemy? You know, where things are not working out for you and instead of kind of climbing up where you should be, things are going down and they're not going down well. Have you ever been your own worst enemy? A long, 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 long time ago in life, previous lifetime, when I was a teenager. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? (laughs) I was a teenager in high school. And one Monday morning early, my mother said to me, Gordon, you're your own worst enemy. And I hated that. I hated that with a passion for two reasons. Number one, I've never been at enmity with myself. I've always quite liked myself. So I've been on a good basis, friendly basis for myself. So I hated it when she said that for that reason. And secondly, I hated it because she was right. <laughs> I had an assignment that was due that morning. And I hadn't finished it because I'd been doing other things, you know, as you do. And uh, she said, you your own worst enemy and I knew I was going to be in trouble when I got to school and I was so have you ever been your own worst enemy and the answer is whatever you think and you're going to say to me you have you have Uh, you can be your own worst enemy on you know a big macro scale scale where uh, the negative events of being your own worst enemy impact your marriage your family your health, your finances, your vocational pursuits and all those kind of things. Or you can be your own worst enemy on a a lesser scale uh, that has a lesser impact. But the fact of the matter is uh, that that a single bad decision uh, can be the first step, even though it's a little one, uh, to being your own worst enemy. Becoming your own worst enemy in those big events, you know, the big macro issues, is not something that happens in one great big fell swoop. The thing about decisions, even small ones, is that habits and patterns uh, grow out of decisions, you know, and your habits and patterns that are not serving your marriage well right now, or your family well right now, or your finances well right now, or your vocational pursuits right now, uh, they began with a single bad decision. Might have been just a little one. And, you know, here's another thing. Where things are going well in your marriage and your family and your workplace and your finances, guess what? Began with one good decision. That's what. The habits and the patterns. And so when my mother arrested me that Monday morning and I went, I went on from there, I took it, I took it to heart. Mum, thank you, Mum. <laughs> Maybe your mum has said something to you. Take it to heart. And I went on to do really, really well academically at high school, at university, and bachelor's and master's degrees. I did really, really well. Have you ever been your Because I got arrested right there. Have you ever been your own worst enemy? Jesus didn't actually use that worst enemy terminology, but the principle that we're talking about, he did teach on. Matthew 7, 24 to 27. Therefore, said Jesus... Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
The rain came down, we sang about it, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, yet it didn't fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When you build your house on the floodplain, this is so true in Australia. When you build your house on the floodplain, where year after year, the rivers that feed that floodplain rise and houses get destroyed, uh, Jesus is saying, you know, your house suffers damage on that floodplain, well, 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 no one to blame but yourself because you built there. And, and, and the principle, uh, this principle that Jesus is teaching uh, potentially impacts upon all of us where we build the decisions we make and uh, being our own worst enemy. So in this series that I'm kicking off today, we're actually going to look at three habits uh, that if we develop and utilize, we're encouraging you to do that, uh, we will minimize the possibility of becoming our own worst enemy. So today I'm bringing you the first one. I'm privileged to do that. Next week, Alistair is going to be standing here and he's going to bring you habit number two. And uh, the third week, guess what? Pastor Daniel's going to be back to bring you the third habit. Right. So are you ready? I got the first one for you today. And I think that we've probably dealt with this one before in another series. Uh, but hey, it's a good one. So it's worth hearing again. And it's called Pay Attention to the Tension. Pay attention to the tension. Now, because uh, the idea is that these uh, three uh, things become habits, I want us to get them into our thinking and into our spirit and uh, get ready to practice them. So when you're about to say the thing or do the thing or go to the place that may be as doubtful uh, and become your own worst enemy, uh, look out, pay attention to the tension, look at that little knock on the back door of your mind and pay attention to that. This could be, that little knock on the back door of your mind, could be uh, the alert that causes you to say no to dumb things in dumb places. Uh, New Year's Day. New Year's Day. My wife and I went out for breakfast. Now, New Year's Eve, we did not go out. New Year's Eve, I think we're in bed by 9.30. <laughs> so good. Because the next morning we're going to have breakfast date third and no one else is awake because they were out at midnight seeing the, the fireworks. So we go to Palm Beach at Rockingham to the restaurant and, and we had breakfast. We had a big breakfast. It was so good. And then we're feeling pretty good with ourselves starting off 2024. We, we got romantic and went for a walk along the beach hand in hand. And life is good. Until Lara looked down. What Lara saw on the sand was like a name badge, an ID badge that security officers wear. You know, they clip them onto their shirt. And she picked it up. And we hatched a plan, or Lara pretty well did. And I said yes. Because <laughs> we're doing good to this point in time. And she's going to work, the, this is 1 January, and she's going to work. You see, I, I'm not going anymore. 
to work. <laughs> and so the plan is that this name badge should be handed in at the police station. She, she works in Frio. She's not handing it in. She gives me the name badge, handing us in tomorrow. And it seemed like a good idea on January 1. January 2, I didn't want to go to the police station. I wanted to go to Bunnings. <laughs> we, we've just moved into a new house like a couple of months ago. We haven't finished unpacking yet. And I need shelves. And I'd looked at Bunnings' website and they had them cheap. You know, it's still the Boxing Day sale or the Black Friday sale, whatever. They're going cheap. I want to go to Bunnings. I want to go to the police station with the name badge. And so I had a chat to myself, a little talk. I said, Gordon, how many people know that I have the name badge? And I answered myself, just Lara and you in the whole universe, nobody else. Muhammad, who the name badge belongs to, he doesn't know. The police don't know. I want to go to Bunnings. I have a shredder at home. It's just a conversation, right? <laughs> I could take it home and shred it. Shredder, here I come. Why did Lara pick it up from the sand anyway? Didn't belong to her. Should have mind her own business. Case closed, Shredder, here I come, and after that, Bunnings, here I come. <laughs> Little tap on the back door of the mind, and with the door opening a little whisper, Muhammad may need that name badge. And I said, oh, rats. <laughs> Guess I'm going to the police station. So I went to the police station, handed it in. I got the receipt from the constable. I helped him fill it in myself and done. Now listen to me. See, now those of you online, plus all of those of you in the auditorium, uh, to get this into our thinking and into our spirit, uh, the slogan is this. This is the principle that the first one of the three Pay attention to the tension. I want you to all say it with me. Here we go. Pay attention to the tension. <laughs> so you are considering an option, maybe shredding somebody else's card, uh, an invitation, a choice, a place, an action, and right at the back door of your mind comes a little tap on that door, uh, a sense of hesitation, a sense of wait a minute, uh, what is the right thing to do, what is the wrong thing to do, pay attention to the tension. I was just on my way to Bunnings. We go to the police station, and uh, right there, you know, I could have shredded that pass, but I went to the police station and I got the receipt. And guess what else I got? I got a clear conscience. Conscience is a God-given internal mechanism. Uh, you know, all of us have it. All human beings have it. Uh, and, and it's designed to bring that relevant tension to our thinking processes as we consider, should I do this? Should I do that? Should I decide that? Should I not decide that? Will I regret going down that track, you know? So uh, does the option that I am considering, and it's 2024, we're in the first month, guys, so you're considering lots of things. Does the option I am considering uh, create a tension, a little 
tap on the door, back door of my mind, uh, that I should pay attention to, you know? Attention that suggests that there is something uh, about this option that just doesn't seem right. Right? <laughs> what, what is it that's causing this sense of hesitation? Uh, why is there a sense of botheration about this at all? Why didn't I just shred that past and be done with it? It was only me and Lara would have ever known. I didn't live with Lara for the rest of my days, by the way, so that's a thing. <laughs> Old Keith James, uh, when we first started what is now the Rocks Baldivus, he was part of our he was part of our faith community. A wise old man, he's dead now, uh, died a long time ago. Uh, but if I went to Keith with one of my left field ideas, and I have a few, and so you do too, he would always say to me, Gordon, I need to cogitate on that. Whenever he said that, it was much like my mother saying, you're your own worst enemy. It was kind of like, I think there's something crazy about that idea that won't serve you well. So, so I, I use that term, and if someone comes to me with a left field idea, and I say, I think I need to cogitate on that. I come to myself with a shredding idea of someone else's card. I think I need to cogitate on that. And, 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 and I say to myself, uh, you know, as I cogitate, is this right or is this wrong? What's that knocking on the back door of my mind? And this, this whole process is trickier than it sounds because often the idea or the option is not illegal. It's not immoral. There is just something about it that dings your conscience, that calls you to attention. Well, pay attention to the tension. Uh, this is your conscience helping you to filter out a place that you shouldn't be, an idea where you shouldn't go, uh, to stop, to pause, uh, and, and to cogitate. Uh, maybe you need more information, you know. Maybe you need to listen to the voice of a family member. Uh, maybe you need to think about these things and pay attention to the tension. I want to illustrate this this morning by a story about King David. I, I got this sneaking feeling that I might have told this story here before. Uh, but if I did, it's a fantastic story. And the thing about fantastic stories, you keep on retelling them. They're so good, you know, and this one is. This is. King David was the second king in Israel. Uh, and uh, he steps on to the pages of history as a shepherd boy that we sang about this morning. And one day, uh, the prophet Samuel turns up at his home, at his dad's house, and, and uh, he, he tells the family after a, a little process, uh, a logistical process in the family household there, he says, the youngest kid in the family, David, is going to be the next king of Israel. And you think family's all happy, you know, starting off 2024, the youngest kid in your family is going to be the king. The problem is, they've already got a king. Uh, king Saul. Uh, now, King Saul, if you've been following the political polls there, if there's an election coming up, I don't think he's going to get voted back in because he's not doing well at all. The polls are down, way down. So God has decided to replace King Saul, but, but not quite yet. He's just got the process going. And as time goes by, uh, young shepherd boy David uh, gets an opportunity to make a name for himself by killing uh, the, the, the Philistine enemy giant Goliath. Lopped his head off. 
And immediately David becomes a household name right throughout the kingdom of Israel. In fact, right throughout all the surrounding nations. Everyone knows about David. And pretty soon David's popularity exceeds that of King Saul, who isn't doing too well on the political polls anyway. And Saul gets jealous of the shepherd boy being more popular than him. And so he decides to kill him. He tries all sorts of ways to kill him. And David is forced to flee from the cities and towns and become a fugitive. And because he's now a well-known warrior and leader, he attracts to himself other fugitives. And pretty soon he has hundreds of them. He has his own army. But he can't live in the cities and towns because there's a price on his head by King Saul. So he moves to the desert of En Gedi where there are lots of caves. And he and his bunch of fugitives live in a cave in En Gedi. Saul's spies, he's always got spies out there looking for him from where's David so I can go and kill him. And they alert Saul to the fact that David is holed up in this cave in En Gedi, one of the caves. So late one afternoon, Saul takes 3,000 men. Bit of overkill, do you think? One guy, we take one guy out, maybe half a dozen guys on his team would do it, but he takes 3,000 just to make sure he gets David. And as they come into the land of En Gedi, and uh, it's a kind of a inhospitable kind of place with rocky outcrops and caves and Saul and his army of 3,000 men are weaving their way and winding their way through the rocky windswept hills and the deserts of En Gedi and suddenly Saul halts his 3,000 men because nature calls. Nature just calls. You have too much coffee, nature will call. Yeah, too much to eat, coffee call. And Saul is looking uh, for a place to use the toilet. So he says to the men, oh, I just need to go to the toilet. And uh, he chooses a cave. Hey, here we go. 1 Samuel 24, verse 3. There was a cave near to this place. And Saul went in there to use it as a toilet. The very cave that he chooses for his toilet is the same cave that David and his men are holed up in. David and his men are at the back of the cave in the dark and Saul is in the front because he's in a hurry. And uh, here's the thing, by the way, by the way, because I studied Hebrew at seminary and for three or four years, and, and the, the term here in Hebrew indicates he's doing number twos. Wasn't it good going to college, <laughs> learning Hebrew? Uh, it says covered his feet. That's what the thing says, literally. So, so he's got his trousers down around his ankles. Well, he didn't wear trousers, you know that. He got a robe, but it's just a saying, right? He, he, he's, he's not going anywhere in a hurry. <laughs> and Saul and David and his men. David, David's men go, wow. <laughs> this show, who would have thought? that he would use this very cave where we're living to use the front part of his toilet. Hope he covers it up after he's done, you know. 
And, and, and this is 1 Samuel uh, 24 verse 4. The men said, that's David's men, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I'll give your enemy into your hands to deal with as you wish. In other words, he's gone nowhere. <laughs> You've got him. Cut his throat. David had a little sword. And uh, you think about this, what, what would you do if you're David? This kind of guy's going to kill you. That's why he's down here with his 3,000 men. But now, right now he's doing his business and he's, David's got his little sword and he's sneaking up, yeah, I'll take him out. As he gets there, as he gets closer, a whole lot of stuff, there's a tension going on. There's a, there's a knock on the back door of his mind. 1 Samuel 24 verse 5, David, David was conscience stricken. He's thinking, I could take this guy out. On the, on the one hand, a lot of people would say, well done, David. That was so good. You took him out. But then he's thinking, you know, conscience is kicking in. And inches away from Saul, he's thinking, uh, uh, what? taking him out doesn't necessarily mean that I'll become king. I might just be the guy whose legacy is killing a king while he's sitting on the toilet. It's not a good story to tell your grandkids, really. I have 16 grandkids. I want a good story to tell. I, no, I, just, just like two months ago, I've got my latest great-granddaughter. I want to tell them good stories. Not about ki killing kings sitting on toilets. And David would be thinking this, you know, I could tell them that story, how I cut his throat while he's sitting on the toilet. And they were, way to go, granddad. That was, Opa, you're just the greatest, aren't you? No, no, you don't want that story at all. So long story short, David's got the, the little sword, the knife. Instead of slitting Saul's throat, well, Saul's on the throat, he just cuts a little piece of his robe off. This little corner. He slit that. Then, then he felt bad about that. 1 Samuel 24, 5, afterwards... David was conscience-stricken for having cut the corner off his robe. His conscience caused attention. And he paid attention to the tension that caused him not to launch into what would have been an ill-fated decision. And, and with this piece of the corner of Saul's robe in his hand, David goes back into the depths of the cave to his men and goes, I, I, didn't, I didn't kill him. Just cut a little portion of his cloth of his garment, that's all. He goes, uh, guys, we, we don't go killing kings. That's not what we do. That's not the right thing to do at all. And, and while David's talking to his men and calming them down, Saul finishes his business and goes merrily on his way back to his men, unaware that he just about lost his life in there. Doesn't even know there's a corner missing yet until David comes out of the cave and David calls from above, Saul, Saul, and 3,000 of Saul's military people look up and there's David with a piece of cloth and David bows down and then stands up and Saul looks at He's gone and cut my cloth while I was doing my business. And 3,000 men, plus David's men even, uh, they recognize the hero in this story is the man with the portion of cloth 
David, he spared Saul's life when everyone knew that Saul, who was hunting David down to kill him, would have cut his throat in a heartbeat. So after David, with a bit of cloth, after a short speech, David concludes with this very powerful statement that's for all of us to take home today. I don't know what 23 bought you. I don't know who was mean to you. You know, that's life. Sometimes people are. Don't get back at anyone. This is David's words on your screen. May the Lord judge between you and me. In other words, I, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait on God. I'm going to let God determine the outcome of this conflict. I will not take matters into my own hands. I will not use your bad behavior, whoever's wronged you. I will not use their bad behavior uh, as an excuse to me to do bad things back to them. I will not play God in my life or in yours. So David uh, exercised a measure of restraint here uh, that resulted from paying attention to the tension, the other knock on the door at the back of his mind. Uh, back to the story, all eyes are on, on Saul. All eyes are on Saul, 3,000 of his military people. Like, what's he going to do now? Saul has been humiliated. And he has not been humiliated by David's excellence in, in military maneuvers. He's been humiliated by David's humility. Saul is down here in the desert in En Gedi uh, to kill David. And look what's happened. What's he going to do? Here's what he did. He turned his 3,000 army of soldiers around and headed back to the city. So, question for all of us as we launch into this new year. Uh, do you, you want to... Uh, my answer to this, by the way. Do you want to be... I do. Do you want to be the hero in your own story? Yes, I do. Uh, you actually get to choose whether you're going to be or not, uh, but you need to pay attention to the tension. Months later, Saul, back home now, David's still down in Getty, and, and Saul embroiled in a, in, a, in a battle with the Philistines, their arch enemies of Israel, when a random Philistine archer stationed behind the Philistine infantry, uh, he, he launched an arrow, just kind of randomly lobbed it into the general Israeli army, you know, perhaps to cause some damage. But this random archer's random arrow randomly found a little slot in Saul's armor and mortally wounded him. And Saul fell on his sword and died. And the army was defeated. And when the word uh, reached the city of the defeat of Saul and the army, the citizens declared David as king. David became king without murdering the incumbent king. Uh, David's starting off his, uh, his reign was a far better beginning starting off this way than being the guy who murdered the previous king while he was sitting on the toilet. David paid attention to the tension. Hey people, it's been so good being with you this morning. Thanks for being with us this morning. You know, I hope, I hope this has given you something to think about as we launch into a new year. Here's a couple of things as we wrap it up. 
We all have an internal warning system, the conscience, you know. Maybe you have a name for it, like that raised a red flag. Maybe that's your terminology. Maybe, like me, time to cogitate. Maybe you just say, well, my conscience kicked in and I did not shred the card. Maybe you've been close to a big decision, but the last moment you're about to launch into shred the card or whatever it might be. Something inside of you caused you to bail on doing that, whatever it was. Uh, and whatever it is, you need to tell that story. It's going to help someone. And the security guard's badge, well, he's happily wearing it now doing security. That's what he does. He's got his own one back. Someone handed it in. It was me. Well, how about the decision? You know, when you really want to get back at someone, that decision, and you, 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 you didn't do it. And it seemed to lead to a loss or a defeat. But it actually meant victory. How about that one? And faith in Jesus is like that. By faith in Jesus, you surrender all that you are, all that you have, all that you hope to be to Jesus. And in so doing, you surrender to victory. I want to say the paradox of Christianity. The best decision you will ever make is by faith in Jesus, surrendering to victory. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more great resources and to keep yourself up to date, head to our website. Visit therocks.church.